You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 412, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. And I'm your guest co-host, Emily Trelew. Emily, it is so great to have you today. The last time the listeners got to hear from you was from the podcast panel at RubyConf. What's new with you since then? Yeah, so a lot has changed since we did the podcast panel at RubyConf. I quit my job in December and took three months off, just not working. And then last week on Monday, I started a new job at Shopify. So I've been fun employed for the vast majority of the time since we last spoke. Emily, I definitely want to hear about you starting at Shopify. But first, what did you do during that three month period? Too much, I think is the answer. As you both know, Gemma and I organize a community for women and non-binary Rubyists called WNB.RB. And so I kind of pretended that that was my job for a little bit. I did a lot of work on our website to get it to a place where we could start sharing it publicly. And I think it looks awesome and has been really well received by the community. So I'm so glad that's out there. We've been working on getting sponsorships. And besides that, I spent a lot of time with friends and family. I started creative writing again, which I used to do as a teenager, but in adulthood have just totally abandoned. So I think I really spent time working on things that were super valuable to me and super enriching. So I had a great time. I'm so interested in the creative writing aspect of it. So were you just solving prompts? Were you using some sort of app or were you just really sitting down and free flow writing? I think the last one, I have ideas for stories that I was like, I would think, oh, that would be fun to write and then just never write it because I wasn't in the habit. And so now I'm trying to write 30 minutes every day and just kind of, yeah, nourish the the creative side of myself rather than just the kind of analytical coding side. I love that so much. Now, because of Gemma and Nick, I am starting to learn the Shopify org chart a little bit, but I'm curious what team you're landing on and how that might relate to Gemma's team. Yeah, so I am technically on the same kind of wider team as Gemma. We are both on the Ruby and Rails infrastructure team. On a smaller scale, I am on the Ruby types team. So I'm going to be working on Sorbet and other typing tools for Ruby. That is so cool. I mean, what an opportunity. Nick had just shared with me that there is a, I think, a shared Slack channel between Shopify and Stripe. Is that correct, Gemma? Yes, there is a shared channel. We also have one with a few folks in GitHub as well. And those have been great for working with teams outside of Shopify who are also working on Ruby or things to do with Ruby so we can sync up with them. Ufuk, who we actually recently had on the show, I think was the one who organized these monthly meetings where we can talk with them about what they're working on and what we're working on and make sure that they all work well together. That's awesome. Emily, I relate so hard about struggling to fully disengage during a break. And one thing that we didn't even talk about is that along with me, you also joined the RailsConf program committee. And I think you would agree with me that that is not a small role to take. Would you agree? Yes, I very much agree. And it's so funny because the CFP closed the 
weekend before I started uh, my new job. And so I was like, I know that I'm not going to have as much time to review these CFPs once I start. So I'm doing a reviewing bonanza right now. (laughs) You and I did it so differently because you did do that review bonanza. It was unbelievable. There's a dashboard for the CFP review and you can just see Emily's stats immediately jump like over two days. I was kind of a grazer. I would go to open Twitter and I'm like, you know what? I should probably open the CFP review app and just see if anything new has come in and just review it in real time. And that seemed to have helped me until the end. Because I think we all know that the majority of people submit their CFPs at the very end. So I would open up that tab and be like, oh, there are 40 new CFPs to review. Not today. (laughs) I got to go back to this. I'm going to have to block off time. I wouldn't happen to know anything about anyone who submits their CFPs at the end. Well, we wouldn't know either because we can't (laughs) see anything. So, Gemma, I just assume you're one of the early submitters. (laughs) Also, just as a reminder for any listeners, CFP is a call for proposals and Brittany and Emily were both on the program committee. So they were reviewing all of the proposals for talks that people had submitted to RailsConf. Yeah, I was a- messaging Emily right before the deadline saying I found a new way to procrastinate submitting CFPs and it was reviewing other people's last minute CFPs. So that, <laughs> that was new, new to me. Amazing. You were very vocal in the WNB channel for CFP review, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I think when I first started submitting, having people who had done it before take a look over mine and kind of tell me stylistically what didn't make sense or what information I needed to give that wasn't there was really helpful. So I was hoping to provide that help to others as they were doing it. Well, Emily, I know that you have a lot of thoughts about what makes an effective CFP. And I know that you wrote a book to Gemma. So please please share with the listeners. I want to hear it myself as well, because I can always stand to improve. So for context on that comment, Gemma and I were chatting the other day and she asked if being on the RailsConf program committee had kind of changed my perspective on the CFP process at all. And I didn't anticipate this, but I wrote her a very, very long message. And she was like, we're talking about that on the podcast this week. But basically... I had submitted CFPs to conferences before and I had read a bunch of other people's CFPs, like Gemma said, to kind of help polish them up. But something changes in you. And Brittany, I bet you'll agree when you read 100 plus CFPs, you can't remember them all. It's impossible. And so the ones that are really memorable stick out more in your mind and make it more likely that you're going to like advocate for those CFPs when you come to decide which talks actually get accepted to the conference. And I think there are, I mean, there are many ways to make a CFP memorable. So I'm not going to be prescriptive about that, but I think there are like a couple pretty common pitfalls that we saw. And Brittany, I'd love to hear your take on this as well. So I think one really common pitfall was submitting a CFP that was just way too broad Mm -hmm. of a topic. And what's unfortunate about that is, first of all, it's impossible to distinguish your CFP on that topic from anyone else's because there's no specificity to it. 
And also it can come across, and this is not intentional on the part of the CFP writer, but it can come across as kind of like condescending or you're like a bit full of yourself that you think you can cover this much content in 30 minutes or like however long you have to give this talk when someone who is a little bit more seasoned of a talk giver knows that you are not going to have time to cover all this in 30 minutes. So I think that's one way in which some CFPs can fail and, and make themselves less memorable, even if they would produce a good talk. I completely agree. To me, the CFPs that stood out the most, and I might be biased in this sense, but I really like the CFPs that answer the prompt from the track. Emily and I both submitted three tracks and they were all eligible for CFPs. And some of these CFPs I would open and say, this is exactly what I was looking for. This person has literally answered the prompts. For me, I'm the MC for the Make a Switch track. And it was very clear, I'm switching from this to that. Here's the story. Here's the outline. It's almost like when I'm reading the CFP, I can envision the full slide deck. I can envision this person being fully prepared. Because a lot of the CFPs I would see, it almost felt like a half-baked idea. And I wasn't confident reading it that they were going to get to a place that was going to be a very enriching talk, if that makes sense. Honey Badger is exception, uptime, and cron monitoring all in one place and easily installed in your web app. Deploy with confidence and be your team's DevOps hero. I want to tell you about another awesome feature from our friends at Honey Badger. Have you ever wanted to update all your errors at once or set defaults for incoming errors? With Honey Badger Actions, you can do just that and a lot more. Actions come in two flavors, project actions and batch actions. With project actions, you can automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, add tags to specific error classes and more. Batch actions are similar to project actions, but they can be applied to search results in the errors list. To dive into all things actions, head on over to honeybadger.io. I would say to your track comment, I think something that's not clear to first time submitters is that you don't have to choose a track for your talk. Most conferences, and I won't generalize, but definitely Ruby Central conferences always have a general track and it's okay if your talk goes in the general track, but some people don't realize that that's an option. And so I think they kind of get themselves into a corner trying to make the talk they want to give fit a track that it doesn't really fit and it doesn't have to fit. So if you're listening and you want to submit a proposal in the future, general track is still awesome. I am curious, Emily and Gemma, have either of you ever gotten a talk accepted on the general track? Because I know for me, I have tried and I seem to do much better on a track, probably because it helps me focus. But that's a really good point, Emily. I think my day in the life of a Ruby object, I can't remember 100%, but I don't think that was on a track. I think that was a general one, which I gave at RailsConf last year, I think. But I've, I've seen definitely a lot of talks in general tracks, so I, it does <laughs> exist as a track. Emily, your comment earlier about a CFP that's too broad for 30 minutes I was wondering if you had thoughts on how I, as the author of a CFP, can determine if it's too broad or the flip, if you saw any that were too specific, right? So if my strategy then was just as much specificity as possible, because 30 minutes, if you've never given a talk before, can seem like a lot of time. Even if you have given a talk before, it can still seem like a lot of time. And so 
thoughts on how to estimate how long or how much material to cover, especially if you're less familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree that even if you've given a few talks, you're like 30 minutes. I don't know how I'm going to spend all that time. And then you give your, you practice your first version of the talk and you're like, oh boy, that went a lot quicker than I thought it would. I don't think there's any tried and true method besides if you haven't given a talk before, you have to do a lot more work up front to figure out what is 30 minutes worth of content. One thing that you do, Gemma, that I love in your CFPs, and I'm not saying this because I saw your RailsConf CFPs, but because I've seen past CFPs, in your outline, you give time markers. So you say, I'm going to talk about this for however many minutes, this for however many minutes. And then those times add up to 30 minutes or 25 minutes if you want to save some time for Q&A. I think starting with that and then you could even like write a more detailed outline for each of those sections and say, okay, in this five minute section, I'm thinking about covering this topic, this topic, this topic. Do those topics look like you could cover them in five minutes? What if you just tried to speak kind of like free form about those topics to yourself for five minutes? You'll very quickly see how fast that time goes. So I think there's just like no substitute for experience, but you can give yourself a lot of experience without having given a talk necessarily by investing a little bit more time in those first few CFPs. Yeah. So for me, I don't like to see talks that have been completely recycled from a major conference because that kind of bums me out. The whole point of coming to RailsConf is to see original content. But to your point, Emily, I love when a CSP is submitted and the author has already done like a light version, either internally at their company or at a local meetup. So that way they know they have the confidence that they have the content. And so they have that great starting block. And then I don't want to see the video of them doing it, of course, because then it reveals who the author is. But I like the idea that they've at least, to your point, talked it out loud a bit. Yeah, that's another excellent point that the time you give the talk at the conference does not have to be the first time you give it. And there are plenty of ways to practice it before you submit the CFP and before you get to the conference. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that feedback on the timestamps because the reason I put them in usually is for myself to know relative time. So if I'm giving something eight minutes versus two minutes, that it's like four times more important or four times longer. There's four times more substance there is usually why it's helpful to me. But I totally see how as the reviewer, too, it's actually a helpful indication that I've thought through the timing of the entire talk. But the talking out loud, I think, is a really good idea, too. I've never tried that before. To your point, Gemma, I think this is actually super related. You saying uh, you use the timings to determine what is important, because if you only have 30 minutes to talk, that means you have to figure out in the topic that you're proposing, what are the most important points that you want your audience to take away. And there have to be a limited number of them. And you have to prioritize them in your talk. And so I think adding those timestamps really forces you to figure out, to editorialize and to specify rather than being super vague about it and saying, oh, I'm going to talk about, I don't know, Kubernetes or something. (laughs) That's not a real example, but and which means you're not actually thinking about 
what is the most important thing about Kubernetes that I want to tell my audience about? I find the goals section, I think it's in the pitch or the details, maybe the goals of the talk to be a really helpful one to write to, because then I ground whatever my outline is or or the other details in those goals, like in accomplishing those goals. And I think to your point there, Emily, that's where you can say like, these are the important things that the audience can take away from my talk. I just want to give a lot of credit to the folks who also submitted workshops. I have never done that before. And we got some really excellent workshops that are going to be scheduled into RailsConf. I can't imagine how much work it would be to pull off one of those and to know how long it's going to be and to pre-prepare all that content. Have you two ever tackled submitting a workshop? I have done a workshop. I did a workshop at the Codeland conference in 2020. And of course it was virtual. And of all of the workshops you could possibly give, a virtual workshop is, I think, by far the hardest. People, they don't want to have their cameras on. They don't want to have their microphones on. So it can feel like you're kind of talking to a crowd of ghosts. So that was definitely really, really tough. But I imagine in person, there are a lot of other hard things to consider, but at least audience engagement is a bit better. Yeah, I do not envy the folks who put on virtual workshops. Those seemed really tough. I actually, I submitted a workshop to this RailsConf CFP and we can talk about it because we're in the sweet spot where you've reviewed everything, but I have no idea if it's going to happen. I submitted one called Give Your First Talk, which is actually very on topic. We'll see if that happens. If not this conference, hopefully a different one. Which Gemma, that raises such a good point too. I just want to tell the listeners I have spoke at both RubyConf and RailsConf, but I want to point out that it took me years to get accepted. It doesn't feel great when you submit several talks to a conference and they don't make it. And after being on the other side of it, I always wondered, like, why am I not getting like really detailed feedback as to why this wasn't accepted? Once you see it on the other side, you're like, okay, now I understand. There's so much to do. There's so much to do around planning the conference. And so... I want to put it out there that if anybody wants to approach me and possibly Emily about getting feedback once everything's accepted and whatnot, more than happy to do that. But I don't want you to submit to a conference and think, oh, this conference didn't take it. This talk idea is dead. No way. Maybe you just need to refine it a little bit or you just need to find a different conference to submit it to. I've had many talks that I've submitted to regional Ruby conferences get picked up that maybe didn't make it into RailsConf. I absolutely agree. And yeah, thank you for volunteering me, Brittany. I'm genuinely happy to give feedback to people. Another thing I would encourage folks to do is to submit their CFPs to a site called speakerline.io. It's created by Ruby community member Nadia Odenayo, and it is a repository of CFPs from people I think it's mostly people in the Ruby community, but not necessarily limited to that. And it is a fantastic resource of CFPs that have been accepted at previous Ruby comps and Rails comps, CFPs that have been rejected, CFPs that have been waitlisted and then accepted. So it is really, really enlightening to see talks that got rejected one year, but then got accepted another year or got rejected at one conference, got accepted at a different conference with your own eyes and actually see the content of the CFP. 
The other thing that can be helpful to do is bring your talk to meetups. Meetups, especially in the virtual world, are always looking for folks to speak at them and to participate. And then to Brittany's earlier point, you can write that in your talk description that you've already given the talk and you'll be just better prepared to write the CFP because you'll have the talk kind of further along. I think that's an interesting part of CFPs that they come so early in the process of writing a talk. This episode is also brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Well, moving on to the next topic, this is the part of the episode where Emily and I get to share our mutual admiration of Gemma and her advocacy. Gemma, I was hoping that you could maybe recap your tweets that you've been having with Ruby Central. Thanks for that compliment. Yeah, I reached out via Twitter to Ruby Central. RubyConf in the fall, this coming fall, 2022, is scheduled to be in Houston, Texas. And Texas has some pretty transphobic recommendations and legislation and that presents a really dangerous thing to many members of our community and actually makes the conference just undeniably not inclusive if it were to go forward as a fully in-person conference in Texas. And so I reached out to Ruby Central via Twitter to try and see now, hopefully ahead of time, if there's any way we can move that conference there. Actually, it's from a prior contract. So that conference was just for full context, was supposed to happen in 2020 when they had a contract with the city of Houston and has been pushed back to 2022. And since then, I've been in talks with some folks on the board of Ruby Central and we're really going to try move it. I, I know I certainly won't stop until there is some solution that means that this is not an exclusive conference to anyone in the trans community. Gemma, do you think there's anything that the listeners can do to help here? Yeah, if anyone is interested in uh, kind of draw proposals or think of alternative plans or research, it's a funny thing to talk about. But I think the question of allyship always comes up with me. And there's so many times where it feels like it's excluding a part of my identity or something like that. And people ask how they can be allies. I think for me, as someone who is not trans, this seems like such an opportunity to clearly take action as an ally and to be an ally, right? Not to put the burden on folks who are trans to do this work, to get themselves included, but to instead really demonstrate what true allyship means. So if anyone else is feeling similarly or, or just wants to lend a hand, yeah, definitely reach out to me on Twitter or email or any of those things. I agree. This is so important. And thank you so much for talking about it on the show. I will link up as much as I can under the show notes so listeners can follow along. And I'll certainly link up your contact information, Gemma. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, you two do it too. Not just me over here. Well, to end the show on a lighter note, 
Texas recently gave us a home office stipend. I think we've definitely accepted, you know, we're getting a semi-permanent workspace at WeWork in Denver, but it's going to be six desks. So I think we've all like agreed and I'm sure at Shopify, you all have gone fully remote, that it's important that you have a great home office setup. And so I took some of that money and kind of redid my area. I am a plant killer. I'll admit it right now. It is not my strong suit. <laughs> so my good friends took me out shopping and they helped me locate some plants that should be relatively difficult to kill. And so it definitely is a mood lifter. I got rid of a bunch of old books that I wasn't reading on top of my desk and replaced them with plants, a new colorful, cushy rug. I got a ring light because I'm a vampire. And so I will often be sitting in the dark. And so that's not cool for Zoom calls. But I'm curious, do you two have green thumbs and do you have any essentials at your home desk that you couldn't live without? I am also a plant killer. I've killed almost every single plant I've ever owned as an adult. And honestly, it makes me feel a lot less bad about it that you also don't have a green thumb because I admire you. (laughs) And so to know that you're a very capable human who also can't take care of plants makes me feel a bit better about myself. I had a Venus flytrap on my desk last year and I fried it alive. I mean, really bad, Emily. It wasn't like I killed it. I murdered that plant. I glanced over at it and I was probably like three weeks past like watering it. And I was like, this isn't even kind of dead. (laughs) This is evaporated. (laughs) Just really bad. So I'm trying to like schedule reminders on my phone to like go around and tend to my plants. But cactus is a great way to start. (laughs) I have taken to only purchasing plants that are labeled low maintenance. That's my go to. And I was doing great with that strategy until the pandemic hit and I left my big low maintenance plant for three months. <laughs> Turns out it is not not three month hiatus low maintenance, but like one or two and it'll do fine. Yeah, Brittany, I also recently bought some cactuses from Ikea. It is too early to tell whether I will kill them because it's only been a couple of weeks. But I have a cute little one on my desk that definitely brightens my day. Because I recently started this new job, I also kind of put some effort into revamping my whole office space. And I switched from a monitor and a laptop to just a monitor. And now I have my laptop closed, um, kind of plugged in underneath. And I found that I focus a lot better when I only have one screen and that I was doing a lot of like work multitasking of having a call on one screen and doing something else on the other screen that just like was not helping me with my productivity. And so I'm hoping having one screen will both reduce the clutter on my desk and reduce the clutter in my mind. That's so interesting because I currently run two screens. I use my laptop screen and a monitor. But I recently bought a Mac mini just for personal projects. And so obviously then I don't have the laptop screen. So I'm going to have to take notice, Emily. Now this is going to be a fun experiment. Do I focus better when I'm on the Mac mini and I only have one monitor? What does your monitor situation look like, Gemma? I actually I have a very controversial preference here, which is I prefer just the laptop. I find I rarely use my big monitor. And I get when it's really helpful when I'm, I don't know, really deep in code and there's lots of windows up. But to the single focus point Emily just made, 
I get kind of distracted if there are a ton of tabs up or things like that. And I find that a laptop is kind of all the space I need with exception that if I want to, it's interesting you brought this up too, Emily, if I'm on a call and I want to see people's faces and look at a Google doc or something like that and kind of go back and forth, or I'm giving a presentation and I want to be able to see my slides and see the chat or see people reacting, then I'll use the bigger monitor too. I'm jealous, Gemma, because in some ways that makes you so much more mobile, which I'm actually not surprised to hear. Knowing you, I'm not surprised that that's your preference, just because you've always seemed to have the attitude that you can pick up and go. And so I'm jealous that you don't rely on a monitor like that. I mean, I just spent a week in Denver and, you know, would be a crazy person to bring my monitor with me. And it's painful at first, but once you settle in, you're like, I've got this laptop. And this is all I have. I didn't even bring a mouse or a keyboard. I mean, look at me. Just so mobile. <laughs> really sacrificing for the children here. But, you know, you, you just kind of get used to it. But I think that's my attitude overall, just about life. It's good and bad. If something breaks, I'm like, oh, well, this isn't something I use anymore. And my partner will be like, we should fix that. Like, oh, no, no, this is how it is now. <laughs> I'm just. I'm I'm way too with the flow sometimes. The plant is dead. <laughs> we could revive the plant, but no, the plant is dead. <laughs> One question that I have is with COVID and working from home, not only do we have a lot of power over our desk setups, but we also have power over like what hours we like to work or on, on most teams that are fairly flexible in their remote setup. So I was wondering if you two have any thoughts about like what times of day you're most productive and how you kind of organize your work-life balance when you're always at home. That's such a good question because I am currently in Pittsburgh on the East Coast. The majority of my team is in the mountain time zone, which I absolutely love because I'm most productive in the mornings. So I get my real focus time until the mountain time zone comes online. That being said, we just hired a CTO at Texas and he was in the Chicago area. So I just assumed he was central time. I'm like, okay, this is cool. My East Coast time is still protected. And then he revealed that he is in the East Coast time. (laughs) Like, oh no. (laughs) Because I am so used to nobody talking to me until 1030 in the morning. So I am a early to bed, early to rise type person. What about you, Emily? I'm definitely similar. At my previous job, I was working for a company based in California, but I was kind of working California hours. And so very much against my nature. I was starting work a bit later and ending a bit later. And I think that was actually a very interesting experience because it made me realize, similar to you, Brittany, I can get some really good focus hours in the morning. And there are some hours in the afternoon that I think I don't use best when I'm on my own trying to do focused work that I think I use better when I'm talking to coworkers, having meetings, trying to hash things out and work together. So I'm definitely excited to do a bit more morning focused work and maybe even end work a little bit earlier and be able to enjoy some some sunlight every now and then. <laughs> How about you, Gemma? Yeah, I'm similarly morning person, early to bed, early to rise. But I, the issue I have, and it's interesting, I know you both are runners too, is 
the mornings are my productive time for absolutely everything. Exercise or work or anything else I need to be productive on. So I'll often use it for exercise time, knowing that I'm using my productive time for that, but it's well worth it to me. And then start my workday at like a normal time. I don't know. When I was in the office back in 2020, 2019, some days I would just get into the office at like six, though. And that was wonderful. Like a quiet office, no one around, just like get a few hours in before literally anyone shows up. And I do that some days with work if I'm not running or something like that. But usually I'll, yeah, just use that morning time for exercise. I love that. Well, you two owe me a run when we see each other for the first time in Portland for RailsConf in May. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm very excited. Well, it was great to talk to both of you this morning. I hope you both have a fabulous morning and we'll talk to you soon. Have a lovely day. Good to talk to you. Have a Thanks for day. coming on, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. This was a delight. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.